Today's reading is from Jonah chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. This is God's word for us today. Let's pray. Father God, we want now to look to you. We want to ask that you would quiet our hearts. We want to ask that you would be with us and that you would help us to see and to hear from this book. This is a book that many of us are familiar uh, with the story. Some may not be. And yet, God, it is a particular temptation to miss what you are saying in this book. And so we pray that you would enlighten us and help us, God, in this way. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. (laughs) When most people think of the book of Jonah, if they are familiar with it at all, they probably think something like this, oh yeah, the guy that got swallowed by a whale, right? Uh, That's immediately what we think of, and this tends to happen with us, particularly with miraculous Bible stories, probably because we love to sort of commercialize these stories and sell them as kids' stories. Uh, But for that reason, uh, we tend to trivialize or oversimplify them in the process. We make a way big deal about the more miraculous or whimsical or attention-grabbing details, so big of a deal, in fact, that in the end, we totally miss the spiritual significance of the writing that God has inspired for us. Almost as if, for instance, the fall of Adam and Eve is really just a fanciful story about some talking snake, right? Rather than our rebellion against God, a divine explanation for our fallen human condition, or as if, for instance, Noah's Ark is really just the story of some kind of a floating zoo, rather than God's judgment over creation and his mercy even to preserve some life so that his story of redemption can continue. They don't really tell you that when you go to the water park. It's not really part of the the, the Noah's Ark branding thing that wouldn't really, wouldn't go well. But if there is one story that is famous for being trivialized and misunderstood in this way, it is the story of Jonah and the whale which is what we are going to be looking at for the next about five weeks, four weeks after this week. Um, The book of Jonah is an iconic work of prophetic Hebrew or Old Testament literature. But in order to make sense of this book, I want us just briefly to consider this morning, what is prophetic literature even? What is that? And where does this story happen, right? At what point In the overarching storyline of all of the Bible, does this take place? I want to look with us today at the literary and the historical context of the book of Jonah. And so first, prophetic literature itself makes up a fairly large section of your Old Testament. If you have your Bible, I want you to turn right to the very beginning, one of the first pages. If you look at the the first couple pages of your Bible, you'll find an index page where all of the books of the Bible are sort of listed there in order. Uh, 
If you look at that index page, and in particular, if you focus in on the Old Testament of that index page, in that Old Testament, every book starting from Isaiah to the last book of the Old Testament, Malachi, is considered a prophetic book. The Old Testament ends with 17 such prophetic books. They're often referred to throughout the scriptures as the prophets. And you'll notice that in that collection of 17 books, Jonah is one of them. Now, last summer, we studied Genesis 1 to 11, the very first 11 chapters of the Bible, and we learned that after those 11 chapters, starting in verse 12, chapter 12, rather, the entire Old Testament is the story of God multiplying the descendants of one man, Abraham, and raising them up into this chosen nation, the nation of Israel. And so first, they're enslaved, the family is enslaved in Egypt, then God uses Moses to deliver them out of slavery. Then they uh, overtake the promised land. They eventually appoint kings like King David, King Saul. But by the end of the Old Testament, this chosen kingdom of Israel is divided in two. And eventually both kingdoms collapse and the people of God are sent off and they're scattered in exile. That's a, that's a rough sketch of the entire Old Testament. Very rough. Uh, but just before, during, and after the kingdom was divided, before, during, and after that period, when it was falling and about to be overthrown, we read of what many people refer to as the prophetic age. This is when God sent a number of prophets often to warn the people of Israel. And so therefore, most of these 17 prophetic books focus primarily, if not exclusively, on Israel's broken or soon-to-be-broken relationship with God. And based on the historical references in the book of Jonah, this story more than likely took place while the kingdom of Israel was divided in two. There was a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom, but before that northern kingdom was overthrown by the nation of Assyria. That's where this book fits into the overarching storyline of Scripture. But among all of the prophets, all of them, Jonah stands out as a very unique book. For the most part, prophetic books all have a very similar style to them. They're almost always associated with one prophet in particular, and his name usually bears the name of the book, and most of these books are written by the prophet they're named after, or at least we're understood that the vast majority of it was written by them. Uh, they're basically just collections of what's called oracles, which are really just the messages that God relays through that prophet, usually to the nation of Israel. But none of that is the case with the book of Jonah. It stands alone as a very unique prophetic work. The book of Jonah clearly was not written by Jonah, and it's definitely not filled with his oracles. There is only one sentence of prophecy in this entire book found in chapter 3. The rest of the book is actually just a story about the prophet Jonah, and it is a very strange and whimsical story at that. This book has captured the minds and hearts and even imaginations of God's people for many, many centuries. One commentator in particular described it as one of the masterpieces of biblical literature. And I have to say, after having studied it leading up to this series, I agree. 
It is a really profound book. Now, quite a bit of attention is often given, especially within the last century or so, to the historical reliability of this book. In other words, is this a literal story that actually happened in real life? Some people are particularly fascinated with this question, well, what kind of fish would this have been, right? Uh, is it even possible to survive in the belly of a fish for three days? You have to admit it does sound a bit far-fetched. Um, for what it's worth, though, I'm going to just assume that, yes, this is a real story, uh, mostly that is because I do have a category for the miraculous works of God. And frankly, I think that every Christian must have that category. It makes no sense for us whatsoever to say, oh, yeah, yeah, we believe that God became a man, died, and rose again to live forever. But no, 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 people can't live in the belly of a fish for three days, right? That seems a little inconsistent to me, not to mention Jonah is mentioned elsewhere in Scripture as a literal historical prophet. Uh, for instance, he's mentioned in 2 Kings. He's also mentioned multiple times in the New Testament. But ultimately, I think the question is not, could this happen in real life? The better question is, did the author intend for us to read this as a true, literal story? And frankly, based on the fact that we don't really know much about the author, and based on the fact that this prophetic book is so different than all the other prophetic books, it's clearly not playing by the same rules, it's really not altogether clear in that sense. But the truth is, unlike many other miraculous Bible stories, in this case, there's not really much at stake in this question of whether or not Jonah literally got swallowed by a whale. It doesn't really change much about the meaning and significance of the book, and it certainly doesn't change much about the validity of the overall story of Scripture. This story basically stands on its own. Uh, it, it, is in, it does not advance the overarching storyline of Scripture itself. Uh, for instance, whether or not Jonah was swallowed by a whale has no real impact on the history of Israel uh, it, or even the, the lineage of Abraham, which ultimately leads us to Christ. Jonah is not mentioned in those lineages. And so really to fixate on whether or not this actually happened really does miss the point of this book. It really does. We're going to see that this book has very little to do with a whale. Even little to do with Jonah himself, this specific historical man. Ultimately, this is a story about God and his covenant people, and the fallen world that we live in, and how those things all relate to one another, and how we should think about them as Christians, God's people. Today, we're going to begin this series with an overview sermon, basically of the entire book. Uh, we're going to focus in on just the first three chapters of Jonah, or three verses, rather, of Jonah. But from there, we're also, over the course of the sermon, also going to zoom out uh, to consider the entire prophetic message of the book. And the goal here is so that as we go along in the next four weeks, we'll be able to have the big picture in mind from week to week. I think that's particularly important. And so today, we're just going to consider the big question, what is the book of Jonah really about? What is it really about? I think we're going to see more than Jonah himself, the Old Testament figure, certainly more than the whale or fish that swallows him. This is a book about what God is like and how we, his people, are often very unlike him, very unlike him. As we look at these first three verses of Jonah already, we are going to see the theme that I'm convinced is consistent throughout the entire book. 
In particular, we're going to see the surprising power of God's mercy, and we are going to see the incredible foolishness of our hypocrisy. The surprising power of God's mercy and the incredible foolishness of our hypocrisy. And it is where these themes intersect. It is where they collide. I'm convinced that we find the true prophetic message of this book. And so first in part one, let's look at the surprising power of God's mercy. This book in in verse one begins with a very common phrase in prophetic literature. It says, now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, it says, the son of Amittai. So right away, this shows us, I think, uh, for instance, that Jonah is a literal historical figure. I think that's why his father is named here, because they're trying to, the author's trying to place him in real time and space. He's trying to place him in a genealogy. I also think it shows us, of course, that he is a prophet. The book begins with the word of the Lord coming to him. In other words, God is sending a message to Jonah that he wanted Jonah to then share with others. And even though we only get a one-sentence description of this message that God has, I have to say to any Old Testament Hebrew, this one-sentence description, this one-sentence message would have been outlandish. God tells Jonah, quote, to arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. Again, this would have been incredibly outlandish because Nineveh was a major city center within the nation of Assyria. That's a very important detail. That right there may be the most important historical detail in this entire book to understand because Assyria was not an ally to the Hebrew people. In in fact, later in the story of Scripture, again, they will be the first enemy nation to overthrow that northern kingdom of Israel. It even says right here in the text that they were so wicked even that their evil came before God in heaven. This is no small thing. So so God is sending Jonah to the wicked city center of Israel's sworn enemy. I tried to think of a parallel. Like what would that mean for us today in modern American life? I think it would be like God sending us with a message to North Korea, a, a nation that we have no real uh, alliance with, we, we really have nothing but conflict with, and they'd frankly probably like to wipe us off the map, right? And so on one hand, the fact that God is sending a prophet of his to call out against this enemy nation and the evil in their city would have been very strange into itself, if not almost completely unprecedented, particularly at this point in history. It's just not something prophets did, On the other hand, and this is the key, the fact that he did want to send Jonah to Nineveh reveals something very, very important about who this God is and how he operates. In particular, it reveals that the God of Israel is not just God of Israel. Now, he was the God of Israel. 
in a very unique and special way. He did have a covenant relationship with them that he did not share with any other people group on earth. He did want to use the people of Israel, specifically Noah in particular, to accomplish his redemptive plan. But church, we have to remember this. This God is the creator of all things and therefore the ruler of all nations. And the entire point of him raising up the nation of Israel to begin with was so that through them, he could redeem a spiritual people from among all nations, all tribes, all tongues on earth. But throughout the story of the Old Testament, the Hebrew people often lost sight of this. They often began to convince themselves, you know, they're a little different. They're just categorically other than these rest of these nations. They are spiritually superior. They must be. That's why God chose and is working through them. But as this story continues, we are going to see, even as Jonah runs full steam away from God's calling, God refuses to let Jonah thwart his plan. He goes to great lengths to get his way because the point of his calling out the evil of Nineveh is not simply to call out the evil of Nineveh. The point of this message that he has for them is to call them to repentance. God wants this wicked enemy nation to turn from their sin and bow before him in worship. And church, that's exactly what will happen. Eventually, Jonah will be spit out of the mouth of this whale right there on the shores of Nineveh. I'm convinced he will begrudgingly walk into that city, utter one sentence of prophecy from God, and the entire city, all the way up to the king, will repent and worship our God. And as we read this, we are meant to read it and think, look how powerful the mercy of this God is. We are meant to be shocked. We are meant to be in awe at how kind God is to Nineveh. How eager he is to redeem them. Every step of the way, he is orchestrating the repentance of an enemy nation. He is going to great lengths to ensure that they hear the message he has for them, even though they're wicked, even though their evil is so great, it has come before him in heaven. That's his response. And when they do repent, he happily turns away his wrath. This is a merciful God. This is a merciful God. We are meant to think if Nineveh can experience and be changed by the mercy of this God, then no one is beyond the reach of his mercy. No one. More than that, we're meant to see he clearly does not reserve his mercy for any one particular people group or nation. He didn't even do that with the Old Testament nation of Israel he is eager to extend his mercy not just to one group, but to all the nations of the earth. And with this in mind, I just want to ask us today by way of application, do we really believe in the surprising power of God's mercy? Do we really believe in this? That is a question that I hope will be echoing in our minds for these next four weeks. Do we really believe believe. 
in the surprising power of God's mercy. To some Christians, it feels a bit as if we used to live in Jerusalem here. Uh, America once felt like kind of a more cozy place in God's homeland where most people knew him and worshiping him actually added to our credibility. Uh, But in many ways and for many reasons, that is changing and it's changing very fast. Uh, Almost as if our cozy little Jerusalem is starting to turn into more of a Nineveh. And frankly, I think many Christians just don't know what to do with this or or how to handle it. And it it is. It's very challenging. It's a very hard time to be a Christian. Uh, But meanwhile, in response, there is a strong and growing sense of cynicism that is pervasive in our culture, especially after COVID-19. Many Christians are just bitter towards this world. And, And I know that because I'm tempted toward that same kind of upsetness, cynicism as well. But as we grow more bitter, like Jonah, because the world just seems hopelessly wicked and worthless to us, the problem is we lose sight of the fact that we were wicked and worthless, church. We were wicked and worthless. Apart from the grace of our merciful God, we still would be. More importantly, as our anger and cynicism toward this world grows, often our confidence in the power of God's mercy shrinks. We don't really think he's actually going to redeem these people, right? We start to see the world through adversarial eyes. Our posture becomes hostile and combative rather than hope-filled and redemptive. We only see this world as the enemy. We almost relish the opportunity for a cultural fight so that we can prove our point and expose its wickedness as if we were never wicked ourselves. As if God never had to extend his mercy to us, as if we've never really needed it. Our opinion of ourselves steadily rises. Our perceived need for God's mercy dramatically plummets. And soon, our desire, our passion to extend mercy to others altogether disappears. Can we relate to this? I can relate. Have we lost sight of the surprising, the shocking power of God's mercy? in this way? Has this kind of spiritual cynicism crept into our hearts and our minds? Friends, this is a colossal problem. It is a colossal problem, not just because it's mean or naughty, it is, not just because it could easily lead to a civil war someday, it may, but more importantly, because this is a symptom of a heart that is unmoved by the mercy of God. Those who've received God's mercy in this way should be eager to extend that mercy to others, even their enemies. If you think, no, come on, that's silly. That's not how it works. It is how it works. It absolutely is. And particularly among God's gospel-saturated, grace-redeemed, mercy recipients, it needs to. It has to work this way. So is this true of us? 
Do we really believe in the surprising power of God's mercy? Do, do we actually expect him to redeem people who seem least likely of all to actually worship him? Is the power of his mercy far bigger and far greater in our minds than the evil of our world? Are we willing to go to hard places to be vessels of his mercy and his light? Are we willing to invest in and show hospitality to people who clearly deserve his judgment and therefore desperately need his grace? Are those the kind of people that are welcome in our homes and our lives? Are we inviting them to sit and have dinner with us? Because like Jonah, if not, it may reveal, church, that we have lost sight of the surprising power of God's mercy. Not to mention it may reveal that we have lost sight of our need for God's mercy because none of us deserve to be his people. All of us deserve his judgment just like everyone else in this world. And like Jonah, if we forget this church, then we will inevitably fall prey to the incredible foolishness of our hypocrisy, which is what we see next in part two. Now, throughout this story, Jonah is an angry, bitter man, and he has a glaring blind spot, uh, namely that he is a very proud member of God's covenant community. He is even a prophet. <laughs> He's also happy to cry out to his God in hopes of salvation when he is in need of it. When he finds himself in the belly of a whale, oh God, please save me. But he has no interest in seeing God's mercy extend beyond Israel. None. He presumes upon the mercy of God as if he should get it. Of course he should get it. He is a Hebrew after all. He's part of the circumcision. But those wicked Assyrians, ugh, no, come on. Stop. We see Jonah's foolishness and his hypocrisy right here in verse 3. After God calls him to Nineveh, this is what we read. It says, but Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish away, it says, from the presence of the Lord. Of the Lord. He says that twice. He wants us to see that. He's running away from the presence of the Lord. Now, Joppa was a port city in Israel. It's not far, actually, from the port of Jerusalem, right there in the heart of everything. But Tarshish, you can see on this map, was a port city off the modern-day coast of Spain, which just happens to be 2,500 miles due west, entirely straight across the long edge of the Mediterranean Sea. And I just want you to keep this in mind. This was the entire world map to the people of this day. The author who wrote this book was completely unaware of Antarctica, completely unaware of South America, North America, everything. So he is running to the end of the earth. <laughs> Meanwhile, Nineveh was an Assyrian city about 500 miles due east of Israel, the opposite direction. So when God told Jonah to go and prophesy to Nineveh, what he did was he ran as fast as he could in the complete 
opposite direction. It even cost him money to do that. He had to pay. He had to sacrifice in order to get away from what it was that God wanted him to do. It even says here he ran away from the presence of the Lord, away from the presence of the Lord. It's a theme in this first chapter. He knew exactly what he was doing. Now, this is a tension that runs throughout the book. Jonah stays bitter, angry, and obstinate the whole time. He is a he is a angry dude from the beginning of the book to the very end of the book. And the author never resolves that tension for us at all. <laughs> it just leaves us to sit with it, which has actually perplexed Bible readers for many, many centuries because it's left them wondering, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. What's the point of the book then? Right? Like, when's the happy ending? When does he come around? He can't just stay ignorant and hypocritical the entire time, but he does. He does. Some have even misinterpreted this book because they assume, oh, wait, no, no, no. He must have a change of heart in the belly of the whale. Right when, when he cries out to God, he, he has a change of heart because then, right after he spit out of the belly of the whale, right on the shore, then he goes to Nineveh, and then he gives that prophecy, right? No. No. That is clearly not the case, and we can be sure of it because he does not have a change of heart because after he prophesies, and even after Nineveh repents, if you look at chapter 4 and verse 1, it says, it displeased Jonah exceedingly. He even says after that, basically, you know what, God? This is why I didn't want to come. I knew you'd redeem them. I knew you'd have mercy on them. Ah, right? Jonah never has a change of heart in this book. He is marked by a bitter, angry spirit toward the very people God is trying to redeem from the beginning of the book to the very end of the book. And church, that is the point of this book. That is the point of it. You're going to distill the message of Jonah down to one little sentence. This, I think, is it, our big idea for today. God is surprisingly merciful, and we, his people, can be incredibly hypocritical. We are so unlike our God. We are so unholy that even after he has extended his mercy to us, even after he makes us his covenant people, we could turn right around and scoff at the rest of the world because of their wickedness of sin, because of their uh, deserving of judgment, because they need God's mercy. Never mind the fact that um, we really needed it. About two minutes ago, and even every day since then, uh, never mind the fact that this God is, is zealous to redeem lost people, even if we're not, frankly, never mind all of that, right? This is the timeless theological truth that just leaps off the page of this book. Again, if we have the eyes to see it and the ears to hear it spiritually. Our God is surprisingly merciful, and we can be incredibly hypocritical. So finally, as we begin this journey um, together through, through the book of Jonah, I want to ask us one more question by way of application, and that is, do we really want others to benefit from God's mercy or just us? 
do we really want to see other people benefit from God's mercy, people who are very other than us, maybe even in some ways our enemies, do we want them to benefit from it or just us? Church, the defining mark of a Christian is that we have been redeemed by the grace of God in Jesus Christ. It's an unavoidable fact of Scripture. If we think we do not need God's mercy, if we think we can approach him and have fellowship with him apart from the free gift of his grace and his forgiveness, we are in every conceivable way, by the definition of this Scripture, not even Christians. That's how important this is. This is why anytime anyone joins redemption tonight, when we're going to welcome a handful of people in, uh, we explain this to them in detail in our membership class. And we sit down with them to make sure that they understand um, their sin and their need for God's grace and, and to make sure to the best of our ability that they are trusting in Christ alone to find these things because there is no such thing as a true Christian who has not or thinks they do not need to experience even now the mercy and the grace of God. It's not even a thing. This is the entire point of the message of the Bible. This is the very beating heart of what we cherish in the gospel. But how we feel about other people benefiting from God's grace and mercy actually says quite a bit about whether or not we have really been changed by it ourselves. Are we zealous to see the gospel reach and redeem all kinds of people? Has this biblical vision of God's glory and his mercy transforming our world, has that vision grabbed hold of your heart? Has the zeal of God's redemption transformed even your worldview, even your politics? Does our vision of the gospel extend far beyond the walls of our church or even the community of Wauwatosa? Does it extend to the darkest, most challenging corners of our city? Does it extend beyond the borders of our country even to, the, to the, all the nations of the earth? Parents, what if our kids are sent as missionaries, if they grow up to be missionaries among a people group that is hostile to the gospel, where they could easily lose their life in the name of extending this mercy and this grace to others? How would that sit with us as parents, would we be proud? Would we, would we support this call on their life? Would we send them out with love and support? Uh, will they grow up maybe even having that desire because they've heard us preach of it and teach of it and model it in our lives? If this is hard to wrap your mind around, what about this? What about the neighbor with that political sign that makes you cringe? What about them? Uh, what about the frustrating family members who've made politics their religion? What about the people who protested and destroyed lots of property in our nation this year? What about the LGBTQ community? We may see clear evidence of sin in any number of these groups. There may be all kinds of barriers between us that make our love for them very, very challenging, much like there were barriers between Jonah and, and the people of Nineveh. But do we really want them to experience the mercy of God in the same way that we have? Do we really? 
Or have we received the mercy of God ourselves only to turn around like foolish hypocrites, like Jonah, to deem them somehow unworthy of the very mercy that we have received? Have we forgotten where we came from spiritually? In the never-ending flood of angry media and smug polarization, have we forgotten God's mercy to us in Christ? Have we forgotten his burning passion to redeem wicked image bearers like us? Church, we're living in an unprecedented time. Let's not have that be lost on us as we look to this book. We cannot underestimate the enormous impact of even the invention of the internet the proliferation of of social media, the globalized world that we live in, in the scope of human history, we have to understand that these things are brand new. I want you to imagine if Jonah could have tweeted at the people of Nineveh. If you're ever wondering what that would have looked like, just log on to Twitter and look at what some Christians are saying. There are all kinds of people like Jonah on Twitter, I understand. All of these life-altering developments, again, are brand new, and each of them does have a profound impact on our worldview. In many ways, we have no clue where this all will lead us. But one thing does seem abundantly clear is that if we just sort of coast along with the current of this new modern world, if we just play by its rules, then we will look a lot more like Jonah than Jesus. We will hold ourselves up in this church. We will close the doors. We will yell at each other about how wicked the world is and pat ourselves on the back because, phew, thank God we are nothing like it. If this happens, we may know our Bibles even front to back. We just don't actually submit to and obey them. We may pray very eloquently. We just pray in order to be heard praying eloquently. We may have even an orderly, nice, very appealing church, but it will have no redemptive impact on the world that we live in. None. Because, at least in this scenario, we hate the people that God wants to use us to redeem. This is the dilemma of Jonah. Nothing hardens our hearts quite like convincing ourselves that we are somehow entitled to God's mercy and everyone else actually just deserves his wrath and his judgment. That is the dilemma and the condition of Jonah's heart. And church, that is why God has inspired this prophecy for us today, to warn us about the foolishness of a cynical, hypocritical heart And to remind us all the more of the shocking extent of his mercy. We do need to hear this message, church. We are prone. We are, hear me, we are prone to this kind of foolish self-importance. And I pray that God will use this book, that he will use this series to guard us against these sins to open our eyes to a world filled with lost people 
all around us who he is eager to lavish with the shocking extent of his mercy, even if we are not. Let's pray. Father God, we want to humble ourselves before you now. We want to ask that you would use your word as a light to shine on our church to expose our hypocrisy and our foolishness. When we, as the recipients of your mercy, decide for you who deserves your mercy, when God, in reality, there is not a single one of us who do. God, would you keep us committed to the truth of your word because, frankly, it is that which has the power to transform even a wicked city like Nineveh. Would you give us that passion and that desire not to compromise, but also, God, not to compromise our hearts toward your mission and purpose either. Help us, God, to hear and to receive the message of this book for the sake of your glory, for the sake of the good of our community and this creation, which belongs to you and which you long to redeem. We pray together now in Jesus' name. Amen.